I'm not going to tell this on the pod, but there's a story in this interview by Ian Glenn, where Ian Glenn says that when they were filming Mountains of the Moon, they were in a plane uh, getting really high, because Bob Raffleson smokes tons of weed. Yeah. Uh, and he got Ian Glenn really high and then made him fly the plane into a cloud that looked like an elephant. Oh, my God. That's a good story for the pod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. I told it much more succinctly than I imagined. <laughs> the policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, back from special assignment. I feel like I've been gone way too long. Uh, so I'm very pleased to be back with my two co-hosts. Ryan Saunders. And... Eric Marsh. Uh, for those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic and the other two select films to go along with that topic. And we bring them here to The Gauntlet Studios to, to hash it out, to measure the films, to weigh the films, and to just enjoy each other's company. And I am up this week and, you know... I was very pleased when I was off out of the country listening to the episode you two did with a good friend of ours, Alex Sherman, and your topic was The Pals. Alex had brought that to the table, and it was a, a celebration of, of friendship and, and the joys of, uh, of, of just being pals. So naturally, when I'm coming back, I wanted to just stir things up a bit and stomp all over Alex's topic. So I chose quite the opposite of friendship. Rivalry Week. Films that are exploring the darker side of partnerships, relationships, that sort of thing. And uh, was very interested in the two films that you both chose. I'd never seen them. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, very pleased because I think you both met the topic quite well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm, I'm a little rusty. Forgive me. So let's just jump right into it. So, Ryan, why don't you start us off? Tell us about the film that you brought to the table. Yeah, this was a film that was completely off of my radar. I had never heard of it before, and it was um, something I found through a keyword search of the word rivals. And, you know, I had a lot of backup films in mind, but I was specifically looking for a film about, like, family rivalries, deep-seated antagonism between a, a pair of families. And when I came across this film... Vaka, which means cow, from 1992, I saw that the description had mentioned that it was about a rivalry between two families that lasts multiple generations. So I thought, oh, perfect. Here we go. So to sort of set the scene of, of what this film is, it's a Spanish film from 1992. 
set in the Basque region of Spain, and it spans multiple years starting in 1875 during the Third Carlist Wars, and it moves well into the 30s during the Spanish Civil War. But at the beginning of the film, we're met with a man named Manuel, who was a part of the Irigibel family. And he's on the front lines. And Manuel, not the most courageous of soldiers, to say the least. So in this brief prologue, when armed combat does meet Manuel there on the front lines, he does what you could read as a very cowardly act. He collapses as if he's been shot, but he has not been and he's lying next to one of his compatriots, Carmelo, whose neck is just like gushing, you know, it's like a great little squib gag of just like pulsating little mini waterfall of blood as it like leaks out of him. So ever inventive Manuel decides to just like kind of sop his hands in that uh, spewing blood and then just like kind of decorate his face, uh, decorate himself red so he can be perceived as a wounded and or dead soldier. And that's what ends up happening. He, he's perceived his dead. Um, at one point, a, a cart carrying a load of bodies rolls over his leg, which damages his leg for the rest of his life. And he's tossed amongst all of these fallen soldiers. And there's this really grotesque scene of them riding all these bodies down in this like beautiful little Basque countryside, you know, like a tree covered tunnel of sorts. And he squirms his way out of all these nude men and plops into the muddy road. And so this act of cowardice then sort of sets up his family and his descendants for a great deal of tension and failure over the years, particularly in its relationship to the family of the man whose blood he had stolen in order to mask himself as, uh, as a fallen soldier. And what happens then for the rest of the film is we get, we kind of check in at different intervals of multiple years as they're passing, and we see how this rivalry sort of quietly evolves between the two families, whether it's amongst competitions or romances, love triangles, et cetera, et cetera, all sort of with the backdrop of some particular political things happening in, in Spain at the time. One interesting thing that the film does do, making it sort of easier to watch too, is that the same actors play those figures in the different generations. So the actor who plays Manuel at the beginning returns as each subsequent descendant. So he's not only Manuel, he's Ignacio, and he's Peru in the, in the final chapter of the film. And so the director, Julio Medem, it was his first feature. It is very self-evidently a first feature. It is a film that is drawing a lot of attention to its flourishes, its sort of magical realist impulses and at times is I found very charming and at other times very frustrating because of that kind of first feature energy of trying to show off all these tricks that he thinks he can kind of, you know, give to all of us. But we could, we could talk a little bit more about that um, as we go on. But so that is Vaca from 1992. Mm. Marsh, what about you? What did you bring to the table? I brought a film I've been uh, meaning to see for a long time now. Uh, it's sort of one of those that's just been on my watch list forever, but I had, had never seen it. And I knew vaguely that there was uh, some rivalry at the heart of it. And so I chose Mountains of the Moon, the 1990 film by new Hollywood maverick Bob Rafelson. And Rafelson is a director who I quite like, you know. Uh, he 
of course, helped create the Monkees uh, in the 60s with Burt Schneider and forming BBS and producing other stuff. But he directed, of course, very famously, Five Easy Pieces, uh, as well as other collabs with Jack Nicholson, like The King of Marvin Gardens and The Postman Always Rings Twice, Redux. So Rafelson is, you know, just a director that, that I'm interested in. I haven't seen all of his movies, and I thought, let's check this one out. So Mountains of the Moon concerns the adventures of real-life adventurers Richard Francis Burton, as played by Patrick Bergen, and John Hanning Speak, as played by Ian Glenn of Game of Thrones fame. And so this is, of course, a, a biographical adventure film about uh, two men uh, of the British Empire who explore Africa. And it is specifically based on their expeditions into Central Africa, roughly around 1857 and 1858. And their whole thing is finding the source of the Nile. And that becomes the basis of Burton and Speak's friendship as well as ultimately their rivalry that results from this great sort of friendship uh, that is sparked by these expeditions. And so the film spans a number of years. It bounces back and forth between Jolly Old and Africa quite jarringly, and I think quite purposefully, right? <laughs> the differences between the two we'll talk about. And it also has fantastic cinematography by the one and only Roger Deakins shooting those Africa African landscapes in a, quite a breathtaking way. And although the film takes place diegetically in you know multiple countries, I believe the whole film was shot in Kenya. Uh, and so you really get to see like all of Kenya basically in this film, uh, in the way they film it on location. So yeah, that's Mountains of the Moon. Yeah, Ian Glenn, before he reached puberty, it feels like, the, the difference between his voice and Game of Thrones, you know, kind of the grizzled stoneman saying, Kalisa, <laughs> compared to his little pipsqueak voice as, as, as Speak himself, um, was, yeah, was pretty Yeah, he's quite jarring. the little, like, dandy here. You yeah, know? yeah, he is. You know, it strikes me as well in thinking about the topic, Rivalry Week, and, and thinking about rivalries, uh, and, you know, um, um, these kinds of relationships, you know, of uh, that we're exploring in both these films. I, I think, you know, sometimes when I think of rivals, whether it's in, you know, sports or politics, uh, in many situations, there's also an element of respect. And in certain cases, I think like a mutual respect. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think both of these films do a good job of showcasing that, of grappling with that idea as well, that that you can be at odds with someone or feel uh, competitive with someone. And oftentimes, the the deeper the rivalry, sometimes I feel like you also have the, this this deep-seated admiration or respect or or sense of camaraderie, right? That, that when a feud goes on so long, uh, there's this familiarity, right? Yeah. There's this sense of almost a family that gets built in spite of these these battles that can take place. Yeah, I feel like a rivalry has to be based on mutual respect to an extent in order for it to be like a full-bodied rivalry. Because if you're fighting for something, you can't just think that you can 
claim it uh, that easily, you know. And I think that Mountains of the Moon, in order to make that rivalry feel rather heartbreaking by the end, it, at least that's the way they've sort of perceived their rivalry that's contested in history, you know. But mm. they had to establish that friendship. And it, it is a, a pals movie for quite a while, and that's why it is so heartbreaking when it does veer then into rivalry territory. And it does feel like something, though, that kind of haunts a lot of the scenes of the film, the possibility for rivalry, because there are so many competing forces controlling what they're doing out there in Africa, and also they both seem to have a different impetus for why they even want to be there. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I really appreciated about it was, I guess I was expecting more of an explicit rivalry, and there's an implicit rivalry in their friendship uh, from the beginning, right? They're very different people, right? So they set it up, and, and as is sort of rooted in history, Burton is the rugged sort of man of action adventurer like sexy guy you know and speak is very like uptight english and is really only at home like killing things and hunting uh, and there's this you know there's this great tension between them even as they are working together and saving each other's lives multiple times but there's just this little simmering jealousy this little simmering competitiveness uh between them that's like inherent and implicit that is there the whole time you know so so when it does go sour, you know, it's not like you didn't see that coming, right? Right. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because Mountains of the Moon is like this very slow build up to an explicit rivalry, whereas Vaka sort of lays out, you know, this is what happened and this is why these people hate each other. And so there isn't much love between the families, but I think as you both are talking about, over generations, right, things get all mixed up, you know, yeah. as we know. I think mm -hmm. it's interesting, too, that both films, even though one has a slow buildup and the other one sort of starts right out the gate with its its rivalry, they do both kind of have their source in something a bit similar, um, something that could be perceived as an act of cowardice. Because in Mountains of the Moon, there's a moment where Ian Glenn, in the heat of battle, sort of retreats into a tent in order to reload. And there's definitely like an exchange between... Speak Ian Glenn and 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 Richard Burton because yeah. Burton thinks he's he's turning tail and running exactly and even like says to him like where the hell are you going like stay here and fight you mm -hmm. know? and I was just surprised to see that then that the, that action was so similar in both films that they had like that was just sort of a weird happenstance of this double feature that they kind of like found their source there of course Speak's act is not nearly as cowardly as Manuel's in Vaca because he does, you know, exit the tent and save Burton's life, which is acknowledged by Burton. But it is that moment that later is sort of, it's like a seed that's planted that then gets sort of turned around in a way that will then like set them against each other, will sort of spark a rivalry. It's interesting how both films treat their rivalries as based in an action of an individual and how everyone is understanding that single action. And within the context of battle, too. You know, it's like, you yeah. fuck up in battle, people aren't going to forget for the rest of their lives, <laughs> no, you no. know? No. Um, Especially after you take a spear to the face, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, I have to say, both of the films, again, if we're just almost superficially even connecting them, both feature... Uh, a lot of graphic violence yeah. that that really struck me. There's some very gnarly moments yeah. 
in both of these films that almost ventures into like body horror territory. Man, some of the stuff in in Mountains of the Moon, I, I think that I really appreciated is showing the physical toll that journey takes on everyone physically as well as mentally and emotionally uh, just putting people into such extreme conditions and I think that ultimately the film is really about you know what that journey does to both of these people you know how it shapes them how it even alters them changes their perspective on on things including their relationship but mm-hmm. but yeah i mean both films uh have i think open in you know at least the the sort of origin uh, as you're describing it of the rivalries like are are both in some very gnarly acts of of violence and bloodshed yeah i mean even again as you already mentioned like the the cart rolling over his leg. I mean, like I winced when I was seeing that. You know, like, especially when you see the wound after he's fallen out of the cart of all the bodies and how shredded it is. Yeah, um, yeah. There's lots of gnarly details like that that don't become necessarily the focus of the image, but they're there and they're they're pretty yucky. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's also worth pointing out the even more macro rivalry stuff going on, you know, <laughs> at the risk of maybe being too broad, right? The rivalry amongst peoples uh, on a larger sense. But I mean, it's not a coincidence that uh, in Vaka, it starts and ends with civil wars, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. we have, you know, these different factions who are warring in 1875. And guess what? They're going to be warring again in 1936. And just as in in that, in Mountains of the Moon, a little broader, but the colonialists, the imperialists versus tribes, tribes versus each other, right? And there are all these different, you know, strands of, of rivalry that are kind of baked into these uh, worlds. There's something also in Mountains of the Moon in terms of the competing interests of people who believe in the nature of like exploration and then obviously capital right. creating its own rivalry to suit its to suit its ends. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I noticed about the two uh, the two men in Mountains of the Moon that I think it's established pretty early on in planting some of those seeds and and in that implicit part of the rivalry you're talking about is that you know from the get-go when speak sort of finds Burton, he sort of seeks him out, he's heard of him, uh, and and wants to, you know, go on this expedition to find, the, the goal was from the get-go, right, to find the source of the Nile River, right? That was their their first disastrous expedition together, and that, mm-hmm. that now creates their their partnership and and ultimately their rivalry. As the journey is unfolding, you know, Burton is shown to be someone that is very interested, at least in this film, in the the people and the customs and the culture of what they're they're finding, what they're discovering, right? For him, it's about the journey. The idea of exploring isn't just finding the source of the Nile River. It's it's meeting people. It's it's expanding our world, not just geographically, but socially. Culturally. I, I wrote the culture respecter has logged on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he's when Speak first encounters Burton, he's sort of seeking him out and he's looking for him, and he winds up finding him in a mosque 
in traditional like prayer clothing. And he's sort of like, who is this man? You know, because Speak is, as you mentioned, the sort of very traditional button down Englishman. And Speak is someone who is about the destination. Like that's what he's all about. You know, for him, the mission is finding the source of the Nile River and everything else along the way be damned, it would seem. Again, at least yeah. as the film sort of depicts it. Because So again, we get these right away kind of two different poles, if you will, of, you know, what is the relationship? What is the responsibility between the explorer and that which they are exploring? Yeah, I wrote that speak is, quote, the ultimate hollow man of empire because he really yeah kind of is he's not a, he's not curious he's driven and and yeah skillful and and brave and all that but like he doesn't give a shit you know it's just kind of like a business transaction to him whereas yeah. burton openly criticizes colonial policy uh he recognizes the hypocrisy in his position and it's like and you know alluded to right he's irish so he's a bit of an outsider a bit of a rogue <laughs> he does not necessarily you know uh, bow to the queen and all that so yeah technically if you look at it that way you know he's he is himself uh one of the colonized on a certain level. Sure. Yes, absolutely. And I so I think that's, yeah, that's, you know, just like part of who he was. And as like a real life guy, Burton, you know, smuggled himself into Mecca like multiple times and wrote about it. He did the first English translation of the Kama Sutra, yeah. you know? So like this guy was, yeah, just the insane adventurer writer guy. It's just, yeah, the, all these guys, you know, you go on the rabbit hole of looking through what they did with their lives and it's just, no one lives lives like this anymore. Just, the diversity of their experiences are, is so bizarre. I mean, it's also funny, too, how history sort of repeats itself, at least in the way it's been narrativized. Um, the way you're both describing Speak and Burton um, is very similar to how the narrative has been constructed between the other explorers, Stanley Livingston and um, Braza. Where Brazo was the anti-colonial, you know, he didn't. He he was in it for the love of exploration, about the social element, respecting the cultures, and he's he's not even as much of a controversial figure, obviously, as Livingston. Livingston is like sort of a more extreme version of Speak, where he's like actively evil and he's trying to exploit and he's trying to ruin lives and he's just ruthlessly killing because he doesn't value any of the life that's around him. But it is it's a very similar relationship, and I think the film is kind of riffing on that a little bit, especially since I mean those explorers are referenced in the film because. They were somewhat contemporaries. Well, and Livingston has a cameo in what I think is one of the great scenes of the movie when Burton, uh, toward later in the film, meets Livingston, and Livingston uh, dismisses everyone else in the room so they can be one-on-one, -on -one, and then they just show each other their scars and are, like, pulling their legs up on <laughs> yeah. a table yeah. like, and criticizing each other, yeah. and it's just these two psycho adventure guys like showing off their scars it's super fucking funny yeah yeah it is they're, they're basically both undressing <laughs> yes. in the scene. Yeah. yeah risky profession we're in indeed you know of course that i was mauled by a lion if it hadn't just fed it would have eaten all of me as it was he only chewed my shoulder. Bullet hole. Single bore. What about this? 
Except on a scorpion. Squashed him dead, but his sting put this hole in my ass. Nearly killed me. Cellulitis. Swells the leg. Had to lance it myself. Drank some brandy that night. Rat bite. That one? And that's and that's another element too. I mean, we should say. Speaking of undressing, uh, it's not you know really fully developed in the film, but there is uh, some fluidity with the sexuality of the characters. Right? It's sort of intimated that the Ian Glenn character speak is maybe gay, uh, and also Burton very much you know was open to these kinds of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's, again, it's not really like fleshed out, but it's through in he, there. He's very earthy, you know, he's a man, a worldly man. And there is, I would say, like an element of that tension, I think, that builds in their, their you know, implicit rivalry, that there is this this sort of bromance that kind of develops through the film of of two men who have at times nurtured for one another, cared for one another, comforted one another, to say nothing of like saving each other's lives in acts of violence, but but also like, you know, caring deeply about the other one's well-being and their their survival throughout the journey that that bonds them in a way that that is um, you know, quite deep, I think, and and quite intense, and and which is why when things do eventually sour, uh, it it feels so tragic because again, you could see genuine hurt that it's come to this that that this person that you know you'd shared so much with now stands seemingly opposed to you in every conceivable way. Well, there's an auteurist reading of this film that you can do with the nuanced portrait of friendship and rivalry here because that's really like Rafelson's story himself. He broke, you know, with Bert Schneider in the 70s and they, you know, they had created this like little empire of producing these films and he talks about it like the betrayal he never saw coming, you know, like he, you know, he felt betrayed, Bert felt betrayed. And that's like when he was sort of cast out of Hollywood. And and again, to do that sort of like Rafelson Burton comparison, like he clearly admires him, the director admiring this character, but he also admires speak like, and I think even though they're different guys, they stand for different things. They believe in different things. It is a, a complex relationship that is shown, right? And I think that's like what's good about Rafelson's movies in general is these like complex male, you know, questionable kind of guy relationships uh, that are always really like naughty and complex. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I'm I'm glad to hear you bring that up because when I was watching it, and and I think that's partly just also for me because of you know, what I know about Rafelson, but I, I, at times was, was reading this film as like, 
as a, as a metaphor for making films, for making productions, you know, and and I'm sort of looking at it in that lens as well of like, you know, the first expedition they go on is like the first film. It's like this independent venture that they take together. They don't really have a lot of funding and they're really just going because let's just do it. Let's just make this thing happen. And of course, it's a disaster. Yeah, they get wrecked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they get wrecked. But they they grew from it. They learned from it. And then, you know, one of them gets, Speak eventually gets like his big production, you know? He gets the, the fame from right. it you all. You gotta go back to England and grovel to the producers, the Royal Geographic Society, you know? <laughs> right, Let yeah. us put on a show again, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that element again, yeah, is is pervasive and i think like i do want to shout out uh there was an esquire piece about rafelson in 2019 and he said he only wants to do the interview because he wants to tell everyone that mountains of the moon is really good (laughs) (laughs) and it's this like amazing portrait and he covers his whole career and he's 86 at the time of this interview and just like dishing it says i want to read this to you guys uh it says talking about his colorful life, you know? Rafelson's stories would come to include swimming with sharks and springing Dennis Hopper from a mental institution. Hopper later pulled a gun on Rafelson, who called the actor's bluff by putting his mouth around the chamber, daring him to pull the trigger. (laughs) Then there are the tales of his brushes with the law. According to Rafelson, he's been incarcerated and tortured on four continents, maybe three, who counts? and was hanged by his feet from the ceiling of a Colombian prison, an experience he describes as, quote, painful, not so much because of the wires attached to my nuts, but because Perry Como was on the radio. Oh, my God. You know, so he's got that kind of life. Like, he, uh, after the army, he had, like, he was in Japan translating for Shochiku, uh, so again, like he just, who is this guy? You know, where yeah. has he been? Apparently he ran away to the circus, you know, like. It was very clear to me that, that he himself sort of sees in Richard Burton a, a kindred spirit, yes. right? That that's on a certain level, like a surrogate for, for Ray Fulson, yeah. you know, as the, 100%. the director who is, is out there making it uh, under whatever circumstances he can. Uh, in any way, but also in it, not just for the film, but for the journey, the the adventure. There is a funny story that uh, Rafelson said the only reason this film got made is because there was a writer's strike in the the the, cla- the big writer's strike of the late '80s, and some shady guys from overseas were just like, "What do you got?" And he said, "Oh, I have this Richard Burton thing," and they gave him twelve million dollars on the spot and told him to do whatever. But they thought it was Richard Burton. <laughs> I was um, about to say, and, yeah. and he was just like. All right, I'll go make this movie in Africa. Um, and that's oh it. You know, that's like what, again, what Rafelson claims. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Well, it, you know, admittedly, I have a personal story on that level. Uh, when I first learned about Richard Francis Burton, you know, and his exploration, I was young. I'd, I'd like heard, you know, oh, Richard Burton, and he wrote all these books about. You know, sex. Yeah, and traveling the world. And I, I, I thought it was the actor, Richard yeah. Burton. I was like, he was also an explorer? I was like... Yeah, wild. Yeah, I was young. I didn't really know yeah. at the time, you know? And I thought that Richard Burton, uh, in addition to being a fine actor, was also 
a, a traveler. I mean, I guess well, he, he was did a write those great world. diaries as well. <laughs> yeah, where he talks about you know switching from from vodka to beer and how great it is and good for the shakes and all that stuff. Yeah, he was a real a real nineteenth century man. You know, oh yeah, Richard Burton. He certainly was great actor and great explorer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess on that level as well, right, then that's, I think, where a guy like Speak comes in. And, and for someone like Rafelson to almost see him as this this other kind of hotshot uh, young director who, who might lose touch with his roots, perhaps, you know, as he ascends uh, in, in popularity and amongst certain Spielberg. circles. Right, yeah, yeah, right, Spielberg, whoever. That's right? a funny yeah. way of reading it, too, especially with that scene where as they're on their journey and they see some lions in the distance and Speak's first impulse is to just shoot it, right? You know, to shoot at the director, but then Burton steps in and says, like, no, no, I think I can get them to shoo away, and he's gonna, he's gonna work through it, he's gonna massage the scene, maybe. But then, you know, after he does get the two uh, women lions to sort of flee uh, as he turns around to head back to to the group, he's being stalked by um, a ferocious father lion uh, who does make a leap at him and then speak saves him by shooting and going with his impulse and getting the shot and kill, killing the lion. Um, it's, it happens more than once in the film. Him saving them, like saving each other's lives. Yeah. And I, again, I think that's uh, at least within the film as well, like where so much of that that rivalry starts to build because they do have some successes and and they do start to get attention from you know the the yes the the geographical society back in England and then there's questions of other uh, expeditions and more funding and that sort of thing but also uh, a character who's sort of associated with the geographical society who who starts to interject himself in this relationship and seeks to elevate speak over Burton. And that's Larry Oliphant, as he's known in the film, played by Richard E. Grant, who starts to plant seeds in Speak's head. And I believe also, as you sort of alluded to earlier, there is a sort of almost like racist element or nationalist element because Speak is English and they want to elevate an English hero over the Irishman, Richard Burton. And so he begins to sort of say certain things when he has speaks ear, you know, he's almost a sort of like Iago type figure who, yeah. who, who tries to, to build up a, a, a jealous rivalry between the two that perhaps doesn't even really exist. Right. It is largely manufactured. And I think that's again, this sort of like utopian Rafelson reading of the situation, because I think it was a little muddier in real life than is even portrayed here where yeah. uh, he, you know, Rafelson wants to see the best in these two guys and their relationship and and yes, put it on those elements of society, those elements of money uh, we get in uh, periodically we write we get voiceover from the writings of Burton uh, and he even questions at the very beginning like I don't want you know the source of the Nile to become commodified. I don't want it to be to fall into the wrong hand. You know, he he specifically uses the word exploited at a certain point, right? He's yeah. like, I'm afraid of the exploitation that's going to come from us 
discovering new territory, new land, right? Exactly. So that's I think that's like the film's angle on it, right? Is yeah, putting a lot of yes, the 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 sort of the spark that ignites the rivalry is like yeah, it's like fake, you know. It's like Richard E. Grant whispering in Speak's ear, you know, with his little mustache. <laughs> and again, I, uh, not to just simply you know keep pulling this in that direction, but you know the way you see other films about creative partnerships. And, and how they fall out. And it's it's often in not the, the darkest moments, not in the moments of failure, but in the moments of success when things often start to, to go wrong between partners and groups and stuff. You know, when there is this question of like, who deserves the credit? Who deserves the attention? Like who's going to to benefit and gain from this? And it's it's handled again, I think, very consciously in the film. Um you know, in a similar way, right? That that it's it's I want to be the one that's credited for discovering this thing, and I should be the one who gets the speech at the Royal Geographic yeah. Society. You know, <laughs> yeah. And this is right controversial to Burton because he's actually a geographer, and Speak is just a guy who can like shoot and survive, right? Sort of like yeah, yeah. soldier type. So that tension again is, is is drawn out, and we should also mention, you know, especially if we're going to continue thinking, you know, of some kind of like filmmaking allegory, we should mention their closest collaborators on their big expedition. So after their, you know, initial disastrous expedition, they get funding and they go back to find the source of the Nile, and this is their big collaboration together. And with them, they have C.D. Bombay played by Paul Ansongo, who is an ex-slave and basically their guide and scout. And I did read something really interesting. In real life, uh, he spoke Hindi and so did speak. And so the three of them actually uh, talked in Hindi together. Mm. It wasn't English, but it was because uh, Sidi had been kidnapped and taken to India as a slave. Uh, so he spoke Hindi. Mm. Um, and this guy, of course, is real and led, as we learn in the end credits, five expeditions of English explorers. Yeah. Uh, he covered the continent from north to south and east to west. Some of those people that they have on their journey, like specifically C.D. Bombay, like he's one of the main characters of that movie. He is billed below every white cast member in that film. If you look at the credits and the way it's all, the hierarchy, because it's not order of appearance, it's like every single British actor and then everybody else. Well, he needs to get a better agent. Yeah, That's I mean, that guy had more lines than Livingston. Yes. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Give me a break. Uh, yeah. And so he's played, yes, by Paul Ansongo, the Kenyan actor, and he's awesome, sort of like the heart and soul of the film, kind of like keeping it all together. And it's interesting because at first he's rejected, you know, when they're putting together their, their bigger crew, right? He's yeah. got this sort of like... <laughs> local production manager who's hiring the local, you know, talent and crew. <laughs> and when CD Bombay walks up to, to, you know, sign up and enlist, he's rejected by this guy, you know, he's like, no, 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 this guy's junk. And it's actually, you know, that, that he's then sought out, you know, he's like leaving dejected and then he's followed by, is it Burton? Speak, or speak, speak, speak yeah. seeks him out and, and sees something in him, sees the benefit that was initially, sort of overlooked or rejected by, you know, whoever this guy is that's that's hiring all the 
yeah. the local hands. Well, because CD had the balls to like plead directly to speak. You know, he instead of his attention being diverted to the production manager who's hiring the crew for, Went right to for the, the higher show. Up. Yeah, he looked at to the director who was shaded under an umbrella with his little tea set. You know, and he's like, "Hey, man, like, no, you you want me? I know what you're looking for." And speak, you know, not not the rugged guy, but he does see the he he appreciates a man with courage like that, and I think that's one of the reasons he he, he snatches him up. And Ray Fulson himself prided himself on being a guy that could recognize talent. Of course, very famously, he uh, before either of him or Jack Nicholson were famous. He was like, I'm going to make this guy a star uh, in like the early 60s. And they were like our lifelong friends. Yeah, Nicholson attributes a lot of his his success to Rafelson particularly. Yeah, exactly. And so that was the whole thing, like getting Hopper to direct Easy Rider, like that was Rafelson, you know? Right. So like Rafelson sees himself as like, I see what people don't see in right. people, you know? And like, I'm going to cast this guy, you yeah. know? Because in addition to being a director, like he was also a great producer. Right. Like he, he sought out talent, you know, it wasn't just him behind the lens, but him also sort of overseeing so many great productions from that era. Yeah, mm-hmm. and specifically in this film, they come across another important member of the crew uh, who is about to be eaten by lions in the aforementioned scene uh, that you guys brought up, and that's Delroy Lindo as Mabruki, who uh, is saved uh, from the lions by Speak and Burton and then becomes a part of their crew and kind of their spiritual advisor and he has four ears because he has two ears hanging from his ears uh, and he uses them to uh, listen to the landscape and the and the, to speak with the dead, he said, And to right? speak with the dead as well. And so he becomes their kind of, like, spiritual advisor on this journey, and he's sensing things for them, Yeah, you know. We also get a nice sort of, like, obligatory Omar Sharif cameo as, yeah. a, as yeah. a sort of knowledgeable <laughs> Arab uh, who uh, is in there for, honestly, it's like a blink-and-you'll-miss-it yeah. moment. But I think his sole purpose in the film was just to, to show them a map that just has a huge chunk on it that says uncharted yeah. and unknown. It's like, <laughs> we're like, really not sure what's over here. Right. Yeah. I love it. You know, but good smoke luck. to Jay with Rafelson, you know, I'm just here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we don't need to get into every detail, but on their uh, big expedition, they go through many trials and tribulations. They run into many hostile peoples of Africa, uh, as they know they will and, and should, at least Burton, as uh, he points out to speak, you know, early on. Uh, Understand, Lieutenant. A close observation is not only part of your duty. An Africat means survival. We don't look particularly threatening. You look what you are. White and an intruder. Yeah. Um, straight up, you know. So they, you know, they have various kinds of uh, encounters with different tribes yeah. where they trade or where they fight or where ultimately they're imprisoned and like made, uh, you know, 
I think my I think my favorite encounter. Yeah, we're, we're probably all going. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Yeah, yeah, go yeah. <laughs> you know, they're they're being approached by you know again at this point like they have no idea they're either going to be killed or tortured or something's going to happen. <laughs> right. But they're being approached by a, a a large group of tribesmen, and Speak is of course you know still traumatized perhaps by the initial disastrous encounter and it's it's Burton who says no 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 get the cloth get the cloth right and they unspool this massive massive like roll of just red cloth and and they get into a huge line and just visually I just love that Mm -hmm. sequence because they just start marching as a great phalanx just holding this cloth aloft you know to say no 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 we trade or whatever like I I thought that sequence was awesome well that's also the sequence then where yeah yeah, Ryan's (laughs) nodding over here at the end after they've traded these blankets the one guy uh, one of the tribesmen spits uh, on their faces. Yeah, presumably like some sort like it looks like milk, you know, they're just like spitting, but it's also kind of grainy and I wonder if it was made from rice. I don't know if it's ever said explicitly what that liquid is, but of course it's that classic, you know, the tribesmen do something really bizarre to the civilized man, you know, yeah. they spit all this liquid and speaks, and speaks. A, a massive facial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he's so uptight in English. He's like He's ready. reaching for his revolver. Yeah, like, he's, he's like, like ready, ready to, to throw, throw down. down and Burton's like, "No, nah, man, this is chill. This is like a ritual. This is good. Yeah. Uh, and then it means they, they like you. Yeah, right. It means they like you. And they all just start spitting in each other's faces in this like yeah. white, milky liquid. Yeah. <laughs> Trading cloth, spitting in each other's faces. Yeah. You know? Just classic stuff. It, it also like, you know, just struck me too, like how, you know, considering the, the, the events of the past two years, like seeing a sequence like that in a film almost felt like, I know like weirdly horrifying on a certain level. I was just like, they're just, they're spitting a mouthful of liquid into each other's faces. What a relic of the past. I know know? it is crazy. I was thinking the exact same thing. It's crazy how our brains have now like really become conditioned for that. I mean, my first thought was jokingly like, ah, like another cultural practice, like lost because of this pandemic. Like the, (laughs) Are these poor guys still spitting in each other's faces? Like, you gotta wonder. They're pretty yeah. isolated, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it's like now, you know? Yeah. And that is one of, like, the nicer encounters that they have, because uh, there's quite a few others that, that get very, very rough. Yeah. yeah, and so they discover, discover, quote-unquote, yeah. <laughs> Lake Tanganyika, and think maybe it's the source of the Nile and they like work their crew basically dead looking for passages out of the lake and they discover that it is not the source of the Nile and so it's getting really stressful and really chippy between the two guys and everyone else is dropping dead and then on top of that they wander into a little empire that uh, is a bit hostile, more hostile than the previous encounters, right? As they meet some hostile dudes who take them uh, to their village run by, yeah, like Emperor Veldu. He's tough as nails. Yeah, and he's got like a he's got a minister who's got a bit of a sadistic streak. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, then the movie just gets like really dark and weird as they're kind of like imprisoned and trapped and it's actually this really comical kind of element too uh, because in order to get access to this village they're given like the rules of the village and they have to like dress nice and they have to come bearing gifts things go south well there's a really 
I, I think interesting moment that that also takes place in this encounter where a firearm is produced. Yes, mm-hmm. and the 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 villagers have not encountered one before, and so there's this really like you know intense moment where the gun is 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 pulled and this this emperor like doesn't quite fully understand like how dangerous this thing is and basically just starts waving the gun around and at one point like hands it to a small child okay yes and at that moment i was thinking of el topo you guys remember the part in el topo where there's all these people celebrating in a bar and they're going milagro milagro Mm -hmm. and they pass the gun to a baby and the baby shoots itself like (laughs) that is like this exact scene it's like i was like i was fucking so kid's gonna die i was on i was on edge when the the baby was holding the gun i gotta be honest but it is like i i think of Again, a, a sort of conscious decision, you know, especially in exploring some of the more negative aspects of, you know, the the colonial relationship, the colonizing of Africa, in that we just suddenly introduced firearms, and yeah. you know, to think of of the legacy of a moment like this, of of introducing something like that to these people, and then you know, the destruction that that is now going to <laughs> unfold as a result of this. Because, I mean, it very rapidly tears them apart. You know, yeah. it, there's become, there's tons of infighting primarily as a result of him having that power to just, you know, silence whatever's yeah. bugging him. You the know? emperor shoots somebody right yeah, away. Yeah. Just, just shoots a villager, you know, and is sort of amused by it. There's a couple moments where I think Rafelson's going out of his way to like, you know, at least be conscious of it. I mean, obviously like this is a film about two English explorers, but there's moments like when C.D. Bombay asks Burton if they have slavery uh, in England or where where you're from, right? And and Burton says, yeah, it's worse than here because they commodified it. Yeah. There is this built-in and, and self-conscious critique like Rafelson isn't a fucking idiot. And that's really then in this moment where Burton is imprisoned, right? Yeah. He's sort of held hostage so that speak can continue on, right? That that the deal is struck, that speak can go on and, and see if he can find this this lake, the source of the Nile, but they have to have, you know, Burton as sort of leverage, right? Yeah. You gotta come back for your buddy if you're gonna go on. And then which speak does, I mean, he finds, you know, what then he names Lake Victoria, um, <laughs> which right. is, is the source of the Nile, and it, yeah. it's contested even in the end of the film, but then, you know, revealed in the credits, of course, like, no, he ended up being right, like, this was ended up being the source of the Nile. But yeah, I mean, the film does a pretty good job of showing, too, just the really deadening qualities of an exploration too. I mean, just the fact that like half of them are riddled with dysentery and smallpox and anything you can think of. bugs crawling in their ears. Oh yeah. my God, again, that's the body horror elements that the film like it plays with, you know, the, the bug crawling in the ear that you're talking about, Marsh, was like... Oh, that made me, like, squirm in my seat. It was awful. <laughs> but yeah, that's one of those things, too, where you see a scene like that of them taking care of each other that makes the ending so sad because you've got Burton caring for Speak and pouring that hot wax in his ear. He sings the guy to sleep. You hate to see those guys become rivals. But it's ultimately that discovery, like that moment where they get separated that really then cements and and, and finally sort of tears them apart a little bit because 
technically it's true. Like, Speak did go and find, again, quote, discover Lake Victoria on his own. Burton wasn't there for it. And so ultimately when they get back, well, Speak ends up going back to England first, which again allows the the narrative to to really start to develop especially with Larry Oliphant and the Geographical Society that that really speak was the great hero of this expedition and this journey and the the discovery is all for him you know in his glory and it's wild you know thinking about the publishing world now having that sort of control over current events as it did then you know i mean it's according to the film right you know they're creating a rivalry for the purpose of publishing sales to you know to have like the better text that everyone's going to be flocking after all they want speaks you know account of everything he went through you know they develop a rivalry because of their market plan and i I don't know if the publishing world today uh, has as much reach yeah well everybody would just go to twitter for the real story yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) but they do eventually even court the controversy themselves right that they, like the rivalry ultimately kind of even gets seized upon by them because then they want to have this this moment where they can pit the two against each other and have this 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 sort of dramatic debate about right. whether or not Lake Victoria is the source of the Nile because Burton is certain it isn't but it's it's a little bit more complicated for him he's sort of saying well yes it's a source but not the source and in particular being, as you mentioned, Marsh, like an actual sort of geographic specialist, like he points out that Speak didn't have any tools, didn't have any instruments, didn't measure anything. He just went on an assumption. You know, he sort of looked at Lake Victoria and said, that's it. It's got to be it, right? Yeah. And Burton's like, what are you we talking about? We came all this way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he didn't walk around the damn thing. He just like took a look and he's like, yep. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, ultimately uh, Speak gets... His funding for another picture, uh, another <laughs> adventure, right. uh, to go back and, and confirm, yeah, more of what he did, and and yeah, so then the film builds up to this to this moment of debate that we're about to see happen, and on the uh, the opening day, as they're just like introduce the debate, they're going over the schedule. Uh, Speak retires to uh, his home to do some hunting, and as he does so, he is killed. In a shotgun accident? Question mark? Suicide? Who can say? Yeah, because the way it's staged, the sequence, it's it's very ambiguous as to, like, what actually happens. Because I think the historical record has said, like, it was an accident, right? That's what the historical record on a certain level has said. However, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much you have to take into account there that, that to me puts a lot of that into question and I think Rafelson's playing with that. Yeah. You know? I think Rafelson thinks it's a suicide. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah. it was weird when I just did like brief research looking into that a little bit more. The details are strange, you know, like the bullet went in his armpit, which is like an odd place to kind of, you know, an intentionally self-inflicted wound. And then it also sounds that Burton was the one, according to a lot of the sources I read, who was a proponent of the idea of suicide. Of and course. he claimed that, you know, he didn't want to show up for the debate. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Couldn't take that smoke. Yeah. Yeah. But instead, Rafelson gives it a very different final moment with Burton. And when he's presented with Speak's death mask and someone saying, oh, you know, the body goes through some changes soon after it's dead. I want to make sure I've got this mask right. You know, you're familiar with him. And the film ends with Burton massaging Speak's death mask, stroking his face, making it look more like himself. And more heroic. Yeah. Right? Is ultimately yeah. what they said. And Burton is damned to a life of like consulate ships, you know, which <laughs> is not going to excite his voracious appetite for life, you know. And he lived a long time after, uh, after all this went down, another 30, 40 years. He lived all around the world in these consulate posts, but his days of adventuring were over. Yeah. How expensive do you think it is to get? Like a death mask now. Well, that guy seemed like a kind of famous sculptor. Yeah. So, like, to get that kind of quality, it's probably right. pretty I mean, expensive. Give me a bunch of wet clay. I can make one for you, dude. I see. It wasn't strong enough. The cheekbones, eh? Mouth. Yes. There. Is that it? Is that what he looked like? Yes. That's it. Uh, again, going back to something that you brought up earlier, I mean, I, I was struck by this sort of the homoeroticism of that moment as well, yeah. because when he's looking at it, I mean, he's looking at it as if he's looking at a former lover. And and the the tenderness of him reshaping the face i mean it is a very sort of sensual moment you know and and again one that that i think speaks to the complexity of of their relationship you know that he chooses in that moment to sort of build up his friend again in death you know that Mm -hmm. after and and in spite of everything he ultimately makes the face look more noble and heroic you know he could have just been like yeah that's fine you know fuck that guy right but but he's like no he was more beautiful than this he was his face was was one of courage ultimately and that's you know the note right after that as the sculptor leaves the scene uh and he says oh i'm sorry you know to impose on you i know you guys weren't really that close uh because of the rivalry he's just assuming and isabel burton's wife says they were friends you know, corrects him. Like, don't say they weren't close. That's a lie. They're closer than two people have ever been. So yeah, while, while Mountains of the Moon ends with the touching moment of massaging a death mask into being something more heroic, Vaka opens with a cowardly act of massaging um, a gaping wound what the fuck (laughs) my god well i mean that is appropriate i mean the film is more is more about a festering wound yes uh than anything else Uh you know yeah and it is like a cowardly act that's never really i mean no spoilers it's never really um reframed in any heroic way as there is like there is that mutual admiration and love in Mountains of the Moon. But this rivalry, though maybe not brought up as explicitly between the two families to each other, is something that sort of feels like it is ingrained in them. It's less so something that's being controlled by outside forces like the publishing agents in Mountains of the Moon, but instead something that is in the source of blood. 
and blood is something that's really hammered in this film. I mean, if you've got a film that's pairing two families against each other, of course, there's an element of like, oh, our blood versus your blood, but this film literalizes it with stealing the blood of a wounded man, rubbing it on his face, and then it becomes this idea that the curse is now in his blood because he has stained his blood and it will live through his family in multiple generations. Well, and even, I think, Building upon that, you know, that whole sequence, uh, the prologue, you know, it's it's really, yes, in, in death, it's about birth, the birth of what's now going to unfold over the next 60-some years uh, mm-hmm. in the way that he is naked and he is, like, in this pile of bodies and then sort of slithers out of it as it like as if like leaving the womb right yeah, covered yeah. in in someone else's blood and sort of being spit out onto the earth you know <laughs> like it's it's a really great sequence yeah. you know and mm-hmm. it coincides with the birth of Juan because that's the initial interaction in the trenches Carmelo comes to see Manuel and asks him was his baby born? And he tells him yes. And that's the moment when Carmelo is like going to take him under his wing and they're looking over the trench and then all, uh, everything goes to hell. And next thing you know, he's stealing his blood and smothering it all over <laughs> his face. And and so these things again are all coinciding. And I think the film feels to your point, Ryan, the film feels like mythological um, mm. in, in a lot of ways, right? Blood and like these families. And, and it's almost like the outside world doesn't even really exist uh, in this film, right? It's like these two families, they can see each other's houses in the hills of Spain and beautiful hills of Spain. Yeah, very nice. Uh, and that's really what where we are geographically limited by the film over the next 60 years or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it is like this sealed off kind of mythic realm. Yeah, and there's a hyper-specificity to it, too, because it is acknowledging what wars are taking place, specifically these civil wars. It's so specific in terms of that. At the same time, it's also not really engaging too much, literally, like or explicitly, with the politics of these wars. It is very much the politics of these two families. I mean, I feel like there's more references to America than there is to Spanish politics in this film. They just like kind of talk about America as the other space outside of Basque country. Yeah, but everything is spoken of all the the sort of like outside world is is even it's spoken of in these very like sort of vague general terms. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, at a certain point it's 1915 and you know they simply say Europe is at war, and it's just this total yeah. reduction for the insanity of the fucking First World War that's taking place. Not there, right? Not there. Not in this you know secluded bit of Basque country in the north of Spain. But <laughs> but to again imagine like what that means, you know, when they speak of something like America, right, or England, or wherever uh, it is in this, you know, it's just this kind of big other. From yeah. the, as you said, almost like the hyper specificity of the 
the the politics between these these two houses, you know, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I was a little nervous when I started when I thought that maybe there would have been a lot more importance placed on the specific like political machinations between you know the Carlists and all these different factions, and it was reminding me of when you shared the story on the pod about doing your what was it you were in middle school we were 12 years old when you did a project on the spanish civil war and you became like incredibly familiar with all the factions so i was like confidently watching the film knowing like oh andy's gonna be able to hold my hand through this if i need him later but the film really does remain like a family focused endeavor and i you know i never felt lost in terms of it was clear what the you know the differences were yeah i think like anything right um you know different people with different knowledge of culture and countries and nationalities and all that stuff. Like they're going to, they're going to read these films on, on multiple levels. And this film I think is consciously made with an outsider's perspective in mind as well. Yeah. Saying like, let's mm. not embed you too deep into the, <laughs> the, the, the back and forth relationship that the Carlists and the Basques had with one another, you know, uh, because yeah, you will just at a certain point be focusing simply on that and trying to, keep track of all that, yeah. right? I mean, know? the film's more concerned with competitive axe cutting than it is with uh, anything to do with, like, the Carlist War and, and that, because we leave that prologue very quickly, and then we jump ahead 30 years into the future, where, and we're only in 1875 for the first, like, 10, 15 minutes of this film, um, and then we arrive in 1905. Manuel is now an older man. He's still lives in Basque country. He's permanently has to wear um, like a makeshift sort of... Um, knee brace. Knee brace, exactly. Yeah, because his leg was ruined when it was rolled over by that cart as he was pretending to be a corpse. And, you know, I think w another important thing that needs to be addressed then before we, I guess, jump ahead to 1905 is that, the you know, the sole witness of his cowardly act was a cow. And cows obviously the film is called Vaca are very heavily featured throughout his life and are these observers and the director Julio Medem kind of relies on this like little little trick that he deploys with a, a startling frequency which is this like he turns the frame into the eye of a cow and it becomes like a little circle it's like an iris in iris out exactly yeah it reminded me of when I watched my family home movies and my dad you can like hear him touching the camcorder to find the fade out button and then like <laughs> having every shot fade out and fade in. Sometimes he would even vocalize it and be like, and fade out. And then you'd hear his voice kind of fade in, you know? <laughs> and, and every time Julio Madem was giving us another Irish shot, I was thinking of my father and I could think of Julio being like, all right, get, get another little circle, circle shot in here. You know, I'm surprised that's where you went with what this conjured for you because, you know, the iris in, iris out framing device is also, you know, a classic bit of Bond aesthetics. Of course, yeah. Bond, Bond alert. alert. That was actually going to be my next reference point for to describe to a viewer what it looks like. Well, look, I took it much more seriously than you two, <laughs> and I was thinking about its relationship to looking and seeing, which is a big part of this film, because part of this rivalry between these families entails them just looking at each other's yes. land and houses and with varying looks, right? Depending on who the individual is, it may be a look of love or it may be a, a look of hatred. Well, I, it wasn't all Bond for me, you know? I gotta <laughs> say this. But yeah, no, and I, I, I think... Uh... 
I think there is also, you know, connections to be made to the idea of like a camera because, you know, cameras will play a prominent role eventually in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, st still cameras as uh, photography begins to become a big part of certain members of the the family, but but also again the idea of the cow's eye, you know that that they do focus on, and the the particular like blackness of the cow's eye, and this idea of of staring into this sort of void, this this abyss, and and what do you see in there? But also the reflection of it, because as you mentioned, the cows are looking at us, and the cows are sitting there going like. Why are these people constantly blowing each other up? Like, what is <laughs> what is the deal here? You know, and it's this sort of like emptiness in 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 politics, in human failures and tragedies and and bloodshed. You know, the idea of this these these fields in Europe that can be fought over again and again and again. I mean, you mentioned that it opens with the Carlist War and it's the third Carlist War, right? right? And a, a civil war that's going to continue to play out over time in one way or another with shifting alliances. And and in the end, like, what did any of it accomplish? Like, nothing but more cycles of violence and death and, and rebirth into lifelong feuds that we don't really fully even understand, you know, in terms of how they even began. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Manuel, who, of course, you know, committed this act of cowardice that were sort of implicitly led to believe, you know, started the rivalry between these families. But he seems largely unconcerned with any such rivalry as mm -hmm. he's spending his older days as a grandfather and a painter of cows. And it really seems like the grudge is driven by the matriarch of the other family, Paulina, played by Pilar Bardem, Javier Bardem's mother. No shit. That's right. And she's the very stern matriarch. And, and as we get into 1905, we should break down the family because this is like a big chunk of the movie. Yeah. We've got in the Mendeluz family, Paulina the matriarch, Juan the son that was born uh, the day his or around the time his father died and he mm -hmm. is a log cutter and he's very serious and and manly and and tough and Catalina the daughter who is seemingly infatuated with Ignacio across the forest on the other uh, homestead yeah played by Anna Tarrant which is the the little girl in Spirit of the Beehive. Yeah. Um, not someone who I ever thought I'd see, like, nude on screen, so that was, like, a little <laughs> shocking. It's always weird when you're familiar with someone as a child actress and then they grow up and they start disrobing. Um, so that was, like, a shock that I wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> exactly right for me. You know, All right. I would say though, like bringing up Spirit of the Beehive was was uh, you know interesting because I, I was I was thinking of Spirit of the Beehive at, at several times throughout this film because yeah. that film also has connections to you know the 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 troubling history of Spanish politics, especially in relationship with you know 
things and events surrounding the Civil War, but also about generations and children and youth, and then also cameras being a part as well in a yeah. weird way. So, yeah. And also elements of magical realism in both. It's know? clearly a source of inspiration. And then the other family, as we mentioned, Manuel, he's painting. Ignacio, his son, is also a log cutter, uh, as we'll get into in a second when the big competition goes down. Uh, there's Madeline, Ignacio's wife, who is extremely unhappy and unsatisfied in, in their life uh, together because Ignacio's not really interested in her for reasons that I never understood. And then there's several grandchildren, but most important is Christina, who is, uh, yeah, Manuel's granddaughter, and she plays a prominent role in the the following sequences. Yeah, it was funny when I was watching this because this is like one of my kryptonites is trying to make sense of like a a family web and I I'm glad you wrote all this down because it is complicated. I mean, I do think that's one of the th- reasons the film cleverly has the same actors play all these people throughout the generations because then it also gives it that mythic quality that we've been talking about, you know? This face, this actor is representing a certain figure across generations. So it makes it much more palatable. And also, again, a statement on the sort of cycles of of generational mm-hmm. strife, abuse, you could even perhaps yeah, say it yeah. several times, you know, the, the sins of the father, the sins of the mother being passed down, the sins of the grandfather, for that matter, that you know, we are, uh, on a certain level, these characters particularly doomed to perhaps repeat the same mistakes that those made before them. Right. You know, that they're, they're, they're powerless on a certain level in spite of what they try, in spite of perhaps even fleeing to America, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No matter how much we try to shake them, we still got a bit of their face in our face. Oh man. I feel that these days. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so in part two, as the sort of sexual energy between uh, Catalina and Ignacio simmers across the valley and through the forest, we have an axe competition between the two sons. Uh, And this is, you know, from what I understand, part of a larger log cutting competition network because the winner not only gets money, but gets to go on to compete in log cutting elsewhere. Right. Against another great regional champion. Exactly. Yeah. The first thing I thought when it was happening was just like how desperately I wanted to go and see it. And I'm like, surely they're still doing this. And yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Still oh, yeah. doing this the A's Kalari when I looked it up. I, it's it's a very thriving. thriving. It, it's everyone get your tickets now, you know. And so everyone thinks that Juan, the stronger, evident, you know, more evidently stronger of the two of them, is going to win. Uh, but no, it is Manuel's son Ignacio who wins. And this is a sequence that when it was being set up. I'm thinking to myself, like, they better play this out, and they better milk this, and they better just, like, show me, I think it's, like, seven trunks. Ten. Ten? Holy First to cut ten trunks. First to cut ten trunks, and they've got this all set up. And I'm, as a moviegoer, I'm sitting there like, this is where I'm going to get my money's worth. (laughs) And right away... I loved it. You know, there's all these extreme angles like below the trunks as the axes are coming down. Uh, and it has this rhythmic, p- 
poetic quality to the entire sequence where like it really does go on forever and, and i loved every second of it i also found it quite harrowing yeah. watching uh ignacio no shoes no shoes with that axe coming down right between his feet his bare feet like over and over again with as much speed and force as he can muster i mean i was biting my nails watching that yeah it's a film full of what you would say near miss or near hits you know with an axe uh, multiple scenarios of that yeah but i mean it's it is a a great sequence uh because you know as it is sort of established marsh you kind of mentioned you know on the one hand we have strength and endurance and on the other we have speed and agility like going head to head you know and it's it's really kind of laid out quite nicely for us and we we can pick up on the minor intricacies and details of how the competition is is unfolding through a very well edited sequence mm-hmm. i mean it's 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 great yeah it is like you said very rhythmic you know i can still hear the sound of the axe sliding in and out of the wood i mean i felt like i was hearing it in my dreams last night uh just because you hear so much of it in the film you know it's it's like a metronome it it just keeps repeating and that moment has a really funny flourish as well as he's like ripping his axe out um of the log a wedge of wood this is ignacio a wedge of wood rips out of the log as he lifts up his axe and it just soars across the sky and lands in catalina's like her apron's pouch you know like as if it's like landing in her womb you know he's like delivering his this little chunk for her Another like little magical touch that will like pepper peppers the film. And the transition out of the competition uh, is into what is perhaps the showiest uh, shot of the film, as it starts on the grass in a long like little long tracking take, and you know tracks across a cow and goes in on it as we see the flies all over it, and then it tracks sideways just as the cow takes a huge shit. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, uh, yeah, that happens. The sound effects were a little, a little much. <laughs> you yeah. know, they really have like a loud, like farting sound that plays during it as well. And I almost wonder if they put that in simply because of the angle, you know, cause you don't see the cow's ass. Yeah. You see the, the shit fall down and I wonder if they might have thought maybe someone's going to think that's mud we should add like a big (laughs) farting noise too it is pretty egregious (laughs) (laughs) and then like me you know just dumb American juvenile thing I thought it was really funny that when they do get a new cow the cow's name is Poopy you know P-U-P-I-L-L-E but it it, it just sounds like they're going poopy throughout the whole movie you know and you already get a shot of cow shit so you can't can't get the association out of your brain. Uh, these are the hot takes that people come to the gauntlet for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Poop talk. Yeah, <laughs> and so uh, this begins Ignacio's rise to fame as a log-cutting champion, all of which is off-screen, as we're spending like most of part two with Manuel playing with his granddaughter making a scarecrow. Yeah, the scarecrows and all the things he designs are wild. I mean, they're all, like, it's obviously not made out of straw. It's all made 
made of just like materials he's finding in Basque country. So it's very like woodsy. It, it feels like something you would see in like a folk fairy tale or something. The way that these scarecrows are different like traps for boars, like with like a, an axe that gets yeah, triggered. Yeah, it's ostensibly a boar trap, but it has like mythic qualities as it relates to the film yeah. and how it's, you know, represented and shown as mm-hmm. this kind of like woods creature exactly yeah 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 it treads in like folk horror a little bit with some of that stuff too especially when we discover the lighted pit as it's known yes which begins the next sequence of the film yeah and well and and again to uh bring the rivalry to full boil so at the end of part two is finally when, after all these prolonged glances and sexually charged energy, Catalina and Ignacio meet in the forest and uh, have sex. Yeah, they bone. And again, the theme of, yes, birth, death, all that coming back because then we go into part three and they get a cow that's pregnant. And also, it's like 10 years later and there's a new family member, right? Peru, Catalina's son, and also Ignacio's son. And so the rivalry now has had a child. And a sort of star-crossed child at that, because it is the product of both of these households. And at least at first, it's pointed out by Manuel that this child, Peru, is ostensibly illegitimate because... They're living separated. Right. You know, Peru is still living in the household, whereas Ignacio is, you know, still living on his own. Right. This, this triumphant champion gallivanting around in log yeah. competitions, <laughs> showing up with a new car. Yeah, yeah, they ride in with the car. That was funny. Yeah. And then the camera equipment. Right. Which grandfather steals <laughs> as the kids <laughs> steal. <laughs> and again, like the like you mentioned, the cycles of birth. Like we we see, you know, th- this kind of now planting the seed, literally and figuratively, I suppose, for the next section of the film, you know, when when these children are now starting to come of age, the the products of the the previous generation. And this I think begins one of the more sort of like I think the most mythic and spiritual sort of section of the film, the the lighted pit, mm-hmm. when grandfather is introducing the the young children to this strange hollowed out tree stump that is seemingly also a bottomless pit right. in the forest. Kids collect field mice and and uh, sort of have this this competition again of. <laughs> who can throw their mouse into this like hollowed out tree that again, seemingly is like a bottomless pit and uh, Peru misses, you know, he kind of bricks it. And then uh, Christina is able to throw her, her mouse in there. So I guess, what did you guys think of that? You know, that, that sort of what that thing represents, what that, that tree represents because it plays uh, a, a big part in a lot of the sort of events done. I actually wanted to ask you the same thing because it, I did think that of all the things, the symbolic acts in the film that feel very literal, 
this is one of the ones that to me didn't and it had this air of mystery i was just thinking of the forest as the the like the dmz between the families you know where like it was this like you know, other world that you had to go through to pass under the other person's property. For me, the the idea of the lighted pit, not necessarily the stump, but I was connecting the stump as well to the idea of like eyes. And I kind of read the lighted pit as an eye, you know, and perhaps the 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 eyes of the cows and also the camera. Because, you know, there is a sort of glow to eyes you know and yet especially with the cow's eyes they're they're often being presented as this sort of like also bottomless pit you know there's even like this sort of reverse of when at a certain point the grandfather's looking into the eye of the cow and like the reverse shot then is like this camera pulling back into just a seemingly black void with just the the grandfather's face outlined in a circle like looking in and yet there's Perhaps nothing behind it. So, you know, I was thinking of the lighted pit in that sense of, you know, the eyes of the cows, the eyes of humans, the eyes of the camera, and also perhaps this this stump that is also a, a circular kind of black void that people look into and and perhaps try to find some meaning and yet often struggling to come up with anything, right? There is a lack of meaning sometimes in staring or perhaps only what you make of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's like the whole thing with Manuel as he's like getting older now in the third section. I mean, he is, you know, accused of being uh, senile or insane at various points, especially uh, as he's just still painting cows, no matter what he's looking at. You know, if he's looking at his granddaughter, he's still painting a cow, you know, and that's like a funny visual gag throughout. But he does talk to the grandchildren, you know, like about this sort of like magical world, or he's kind of just like saying crazy shit to them that like only they're interested in or buying into or listening, right? Because really what this whole section is doing is like showing us Manuel, Peru, and Christina just kind of like bonding and playing in the forest and like taking photographs and like you know this good thing that's like resulted from these two families you know producing an offspring or whatever because again i think too in this moment this is where we also are now getting you know the grandfather's ultimate perspective of like hey all this bullshit doesn't matter like all this crap doesn't matter i mean at a certain point he's like talking about nature and 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 i think it's even at the pit where they're like throwing the mice in he's sort of like the world doesn't care nature doesn't care what does he say the earth the earth eats it digests that's all it does you know and and what does it eat what does it digest mice us, right? You know, sowing fields with blood, you know, in, in wars and rivalries and, and, and generational violence. And perhaps that blood is ultimately what continues, you know, fertilizing the soil itself. Because there is this element with that tree stump where they're like feeding it yeah. organic material. They're feeding it to mice. They're and infected they, cow carcasses. Right. Yeah. They're just like draping this thing with like cow innards at a certain <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah, that's a crazy thread then is once one of the cows starts to get ill, Poopy uh, becomes, becomes quite ill and they have to 
go through the woods to try and find poisonous mushrooms in order to ease Poopy's passing. And there's also this like image of doom where Manuel, as he's painting these cows, he paints an image of a cow without any hooves and is sort of just floating there in space. It's kind of a satanic image. <laughs> um, it's cursed. It is really odd. And then, yeah, it ends up coming to fruition when after they've given the the poisonous mushrooms to the cow, he does then cut off all the hooves while they take ma- the majority of the cow and dispose of it inside of the lighted pit. He also then later in one of his, you know, these like fairy tale woodsy scarecrows with a scythe that is like spinning with the wind. He sets up all the hooves, all four hooves, uh, like in line of the the scythe on the ground, and the dirty like sticks them in there. So when the the scarecrow is spinning around, it's as if it's like severing the hooves from a, a cow repeatedly. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, when he's reproached for cutting off the the cow's feet by his daughter-in-law, uh, he says, "Shouts help one die." It's good to shout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here everyone's calling him insane. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because at a certain point, you know, when he is being like chastised and then beaten, when the grandfather's like being beaten by some of the family members for, for cutting off the cow's hooves, you know, one of the girls defends him by saying, he's insane. Leave him alone. You know, he's insane. And then later she like apologizes to him. She's like, I'm sorry for calling you crazy. He's like, no, that's a good thing. Like you... You did right or something like <laughs> yeah. that, you know? But it's also in this sort of climax of the film involving the lighted tree and the carcass of the cow being tossed into its endless pit is this other kind of incestuous thread with Juan and his sister Catalina as he's he's so protective and obsessed with her and he sort of wants to control her life. And he freaks her out so much in this like kind of like agonizing nighttime sequence where he just like shakes her on the bed and drives her nuts and Peru can't handle it and has his own little mental breakdown seeing his mom being tossed around the room, you know, on the bed. So she flees, you know, she plans with Ignacio to head to America and in this really impassioned and spooky moment, Juan decides to convince Peru that his mother is dead and that she's been cut up into bits and shoved into the lighted pit and he carries Peru into the woods and the lighted pit is like reeking with bloodied meat and there's flies everywhere, it's putrid, it's gnarly and he's like shoving Peru's head into the pit like, oh, this is where your mother is, you know, go down with her and then we've been talking about what the uh, reveal is ahead of this but it is then revealed that it is just the cow's uh, carcass, but are you folks following this? All right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, again, weird family dynamic. It's a little plotty. There's all these like magical realist touches and details that kind of make it hard to sort of suss out exactly uh, what everyone's impulses are. Let's just say it's a rivalry that leads to some questionable behavior amongst everybody involved. <laughs> And then the fucking Spanish Civil War starts. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and then this all gets wrapped up as Peru then returns from America, and now he's photographing the war. I, I do think that there is there is some, like, irony even in that prologue, going all the way back to how it all begins, in, like, referring so specifically and deliberately to this man as, like, a coward and the cowardly act. Yeah. Because on a, on a whole different level... 
you know, with the grandfather, like, I think he's like one of the, the true humanists of the film. And, and uh, for me, on a very humanistic level, like call it a cowardly act, but also call it a very human act of self-preservation and in, in the midst of the madness of war and the pointlessness of, of these sort of, you know, political pissing matches by, by monarchists and, and trad calves or whatever. Right. Yeah. And he's like, get me out of this mess, you know, but of course on the one level could be stamped a coward by others. And, and yet also at the end, he is, in a weird way going full circle, then referred to as a Carlist hero. Like he, he gets invoked, his name gets invoked in, in this, this moment that you've been referencing where going all the way back to the beginning, the grandfather's referred to as a Carlist hero by, by Juan. Um, but again, that's, that's probably confusing the shit out of everybody here. I, I think though that again, it's like this distinction between heroes and cowards is like, is deliberately obfuscated. And, mm-hmm. and what we see at the end is that confusion taking place again with the Spanish civil war, which was an incredibly confusing conflict for certain <laughs> people to follow. Yes. Yeah. I guess even to confuse things a little further, Peru is like falling in love with Christina, but they're actually kind of half siblings because they have the same father and they don't realize it. Well, that hasn't stopped any European films I've seen before. <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out that in, you know, so historically in the Carlist wars, the Basque, region was allied with the Carlists who were right wing but in the Spanish Civil War Basque country was allied with the Republicans right against the nationalists but we really don't they really don't get into that too much other than just to hammer you know a certain kind of point home Juan joins the nationalists right so uh, Juan is fighting for Franco and very explicitly he's you know he's got this big beard now uh, looking like a Spanish Che Guevara you know he's got the red beret of the Carlists and and again to the point that you made earlier about you know the 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 curious almost fantastic quality of the space between these two homes we have two sides gearing up for for war, for the civil war in full view, seemingly yeah, of, of one another, other. right? Yeah. We have all the, the Carlists and the nationalists donning their red berets and getting their rifles. And we have, you know, the Basques sided with the Republicans and black berets at the other household. And, and everyone just seems to be milling about, you know, waiting for the war to arrive, <laughs> yeah. you know, the war in the forest, as it will be called in the the title of the final chapter of the film. Right. And meanwhile, Peru is just like, I love you, my sister, you know, I'm here to take photographs. And they go into the forest, you know, with the the partisans and uh, get caught up in it as like all of a sudden, you know, everyone's shooting. But again, to point out like the, I guess, I don't want to lean too hard on saying magical realism, but the way the battle is shot in the forest is like a dream. It's like haunting, especially because the film is sort of with uh, Peru and Catalina as they're with the Republicans. And it's like, you don't see the nationalists. They're like popping out of the trees. They're like invisible. They're like predator. Right. And there's (laughs) like, yeah, there's like an interesting stylistic thing going on. Well, it's, it's even, in its construction, a sort of uh, microcosm for the 
the Spanish Civil War like as a whole because at first, you know, this this battle that's taking place, the war in the forest, is again, on a certain level, could very easily be read as just a whole bunch of people acting out these these old feuds and rivalries, you know, because they're all in plain clothes, so to speak. They're all wearing like civilian clothing. We just have red berets and black berets, which is much of how like the Spanish Civil War began. It was a bunch of like local militias and groups creating uneasy alliances with one another and and having at it. And then us eventually the actual nationalist army of Franco does show up in uniform to, to, you know, sort of clean up the mess, so to speak, which means executing all the, the, the Republicans, you know, that they now have control of, of, of the land, you know, and that, that's sort of, again, like this weird kind of metaphor for the way that the Spanish Civil War would unfold, brothers killing brothers, and then eventually Franco and the Nationalists just sort of riding in and, and executing everything that was left. At the end of the film... The two siblings who are in love with each other very poignantly ride off to France where there is, quote, no war. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a, a really, like, bitter note to end on because I was thinking that the film was building up to this, like, but through the generations, the feud will be solved or diffused or, right, you know, like, it'll be crossed and it'll be forgotten. It'll be, you know, reconstructed, like, when they went to America or whatever. But, yeah, they go to France in 1936. So I do think there is this kind of post-Franco bummer vibe going on <laughs> that's like, and then, you know, because, yeah, where are they going, right? Right into the arms of the Nazis. Yeah. So there's a lot of irony in the film yeah. as well. Again, going all the way back to the beginning that he's referred to as a coward, you know? And then, yes, at, at the very end, you know, fleeing through the Spanish, you know, the Basque frontier to France. Ah, safety and security in France in 1936. Wonderful, <laughs> you know, like everything's peaches from now on. There'll be no war. There'll be no war. Europe is too civilized for such things. As Richard Francis Burton said, in this wilderness, you will only find Allah's miserable whimsy. Mm. Ain't it just the way? <laughs> So yeah, I mean, there you have it. You know, Andy, that that was uh, those are our pair of rivalries that we had presented for you. Are there any other um, cinematic rivalries that just get your blood flowing that you 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 love to watch the hatred? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of my favorite uh, on-screen feuds that also takes place over like decades, uh, many, many years, is Ridley Scott's The Duelists. Mm. Uh, I think it is it is like the quintessential rivalry film because, you know, like both of these films, it unfolds over years. Um, we see this great uh, series of duels take place between Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine, who were at one point 
comrades in Napoleon's army and through a perceived slight, you know, again, a, a sort of misunderstanding, this, this, this feud erupts. Yeah, it's just a film full of sword fights that take place over, I think it's like 30 years of French history or something like that. But man, it, it's, it is Ridley's first film. It's his debut feature. And I think it's one of his best films. I think it's so unappreciated in his career today. You know, I don't hear a lot of people talking about the duelists when they talk about Ridley Scott, but it's it's probably one of his tightest films. Visually, I think it's one of his most stunning. And, you know, the guy is not one of my favorite filmmakers, but I think The Duelists is an incredible film, and anyone who hasn't seen it uh, needs to go watch it because, man, it is it is a gorgeous film with some of the best uh, sword fights ever captured on celluloid. Like, the, the attention to detail in these duels that take place are, are incredible. Uh, it's really just a, a feast for the senses. I've never seen it. I'll have to watch it. Molly is a... There's very few people she loves as much as Keith Carradine, so... It, easy Check sell for it me. Out. Yeah. Well, uh, it was Andy's pick this week, but next week it's Ryan's pick for the topic. So, what do you have planned for us? Well, this was a nice episode because uh, here I am. I'm here in the room with the guys. I'm, lo- uh, I'm looking at you. They're looking right at me. I, I'm I'm in town. I uh, coming back home for the holidays and. You know, it's it, it was it was it's been a little more tense than I was expecting, um, <laughs> just in terms of the you know the, to to kind of you know put a timestamp on this episode, um, sort of the you know the Omicron variant and the way it's sort of you know getting in the way of both holiday plans and and et cetera. But you know, I'm happy to be here, uh, and it's been very pleasant. And so I thought, you know, let's take a look at some films about homecoming about returning home, whether that's a literal homecoming or maybe even something a more metaphorical home. So yeah, I challenge you to just take that and see what type of homes you find. All right, sounds good. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I am convinced the Nile source flows from many lakes, not just one. I've repudiated Speak's findings in my own book. The Royal Geographical Society favors his account, unscientific as it is. Of course they sent him back to Africa. Fame, power, conquest, the expansion of the empire, all these objectives suited them perfectly. My interest in what we can learn from ancient cultures insults them. John's betrayal. Who could have predicted it? He is being used. I know his capacity for true friendship. I will not turn on him, nor beg the Royal Geographical Society to go back. This would validate their authority. I despise it. Speak's new reports from Africa will again prove inadequate. Quieto ahí con los demás. 
Peru, ¿has visto a mi hijo? A Lucas, ¿te has visto? Sí. ¿Y qué? ¡Cargue! Se ha escapado. Se ha escapado. Sí, se ha escapado. Bien, Lucas, bien. Es la hostia. Juan. Ese joven es carlista. ¿Quién? El fotógrafo. ¿El americano? ¿Por qué? Porque lo soy, soy carlista. ¡Silencio! Aquí no se ríe ni Dios. Es nieto de dos carlistas que lucharon juntos en la última guerra. Sí, es cierto. Yo estuve con ellos cuando era un chaval. Nos daba de comer en la trinchera. Whoa! <laughs>